0: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Dr. Julia Rose Kraut, lawyer, historian, and the inaugural Judith S. K. Fellow for the Historical Society of the New York Courts to discuss her new book, Threat of Dissent, a History of Ideological Exclusion and Deportation in the United States, published by Harvard University Press just this summer. Uh, welcome to the
1: podcast, Julia. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a wonderful podcast, and I'm delighted to be talking with you and to be able to share a bit about my new book, Threat of Dissent. Uh, you're, well, thanks. It's, it's really great
0: to have you. I enjoyed the book so much. Um, the book argues that ideological exclusion and deportation are rooted in political fear, fear of subversion, and that the U.S. has used... Uh, Exclusion and Deportation, to suppress what you call the threat of dissent. Um, Not dissent, but the threat of it. And the book demonstrates how these tools of exclusion and deportation have been used continuously from the 18th to the 21st centuries, uh, suppressing discussion and speech. And I'm very excited to talk to you about your claims about how the Supreme Court has has, has failed to apply First Amendment principles and precedents. But let's start with some, some background uh, about you and, and how you came to wrote, write the book. I mean, this is a really nuanced mix of law and history. Uh, so how did you come to pick this subject? And how did being both a lawyer and a historian help
1: you write it? So I can actually trace the origins of my interest in writing about law and history and the interest in ideological exclusion deportation to when I was a college student majoring in history at Columbia University two decades ago. And I was focused on studying law and history and interested in social movements and the history of radicalism in the United States. And I was very fortunate to study with some brilliant professors, including Eric Foner and the late Alan Brinkley, who encouraged and supported my interdisciplinary approach to studying the past. And I became very interested in the anarchist movement in the United States and the suppression of anarchist speech in the early 20th century. And one of the cases that I read that just fascinated me was about an English anarchist named John Turner who was excluded from the United States in 1903 under the Alien Immigration Act, which barred anarchists and authorized their deportation. And the act was passed in the wake of the assassination of President William McKinley by a self-proclaimed anarchist named Leon Cholgosh in 1901. And so Turner challenges his exclusion as a violation of the First Amendment and is represented by Clarence Darrow, who takes his case to the Supreme Court and the court upholds the constitutionality of the law and of Turner's exclusion, stating that Congress holds the power to regulate immigration and to exclude whomever it wishes. And as a foreign non-citizen seeking to enter the United States, Turner does not hold constitutional rights. Uh, including First Amendment rights. And he has no standing to challenge his exclusion. And I thought this was so intriguing and that it presented a unique intersection of First Amendment law and immigration that I'd never seen before. And so I continue to pursue uh, my interest in both law and history. I go to law school. Um, I decide to get a PhD in history. And This is during the first couple of years of the war on terror. And what I find is that I'm also reading about foreign scholars who are being barred from coming to the United States under anti-terrorism provisions. And the same arguments that I'm hearing um, about the fact that this is censorship and concern about these types of restrictions and this is a violation of the First Amendment. Are the the, the same arguments and challenges that I read about in the John Turner case. And I begin thinking and saying, there's got to be more of a history here. And I delve into the archives, and I start researching this issue. And um, I find a very, very rich history that I can trace from the Alien Friends Act of 1798, all the way through to the War on Terror, and that it provides a window into discussions of uh, national security and sovereignties, sovereignty, xenophobia, and immigration, foreign policy, and censorship and dissent. And I decide after I get that PhD that I'm going to write a book and it's going to be a legal, legal, political, and social history of ideological exclusion, deportation, and um, that I hope it contributes to a greater understanding both immigration, First Amendment law, and history. And somewhere in there, you got a law degree as well. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, I, I pursued uh, both. And um, I knew that I wanted to work on um, putting law and history together and writing about it, and this was the way to do it. And I, but this, this topic, this subject has kind of um, been part of my life for two decades, and uh, it's now in this book. Well, and if it's been in process
0: for two decades, it, it couldn't have come out at a more meaningful time for uh, those in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and we'll talk later in the program about just how relevant it is to today's uh, American politics and the bills that we're passing. I, this book is so well-researched, um, It and and as I was reading it, I was thinking of it both as a tool for my own scholarship and also as a book that though highly nuanced, highly, highly researched, would also be incredibly accessible to students. I'm wondering if you had an aha moment in the archive, that sort of one thing where you picked up a piece of paper um, or a, a, a digital piece of paper and, and thought, wow.
1: Yes, and I'm, I'm so happy that you um, found that the book is accessible because I wrote it. With a general audience in mind, but also to be used um, by uh, academics in their own work, by lawyers, um, by historians and instructors in the classroom. So I really was focused on um, trying to explain the law clearly and in an accessible manner. Um, and the aha moment, uh, I had, I, this is a rich history and I found a lot. Um, but the aha moment I think was, uh, when I discovered the, uh, origins of a legal strategy, uh, that was devised, um, in a case that I talk about in chapter six, uh, uh, regarding the Exclusion of a Belgian Marxist economist named Ernest Mandel and to discover the backstory um, and to discover who developed this strategy to challenge his exclusion and um, and then finding similar documents that shed more light was really such an aha moment that I, I said, I have to devote an entire chapter to this one case and to really bring this backstory to life, and to bring this archival research to the readers. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it, because it's
0: a fantastic chapter, and I'm looking forward to focusing on it. Let's let's start with the sort of big claims for the book. You you open it with a story about a prominent Palestinian activist, uh, uh, Omar Bargudi. And he's boarding a plane to give a talk at NYU and Harvard, and he's going to also go to his daughter's wedding in Texas. Um, and despite the fact that he's given many talks in the United States and received prestigious awards, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services tells the U.S. consulate to exclude him. And Barghouti is was also a co-founder of the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, which seeks to pressure Israel to change its policies and treatment of the Palestinians. Uh, You use this story, this vignette, as a way to raise questions about the right of a sovereign nation to exclude or deport, the right of NYU or Harvard to engage with him and his ideas, and also whether his exclusion was was a suppression of dissent that undermines liberal democracy's commitment to free expression and deliberation. And you write that some see this as quote an authentically American tool unquote and and the book traces this the long history of this tool. so I, I thought I, we would start with how you define ideological exclusion and how it functions generally before we get into the specifics of a case like um uh, Mandel
1: yes, well. I um, define ideological exclusion deportation as exclusion and deportation uh, based on political beliefs, expressions, and associations. So this isn't religious, um, but political. And throughout um, the 20th century, it's often referred to as political exclusions or deportations, but um, in the past... 20, 30 years, it's uh, really uh, been identified as ideological exclusion deportation, which is what I, is what I um, call it in the book. And um, what, uh, it really functions as a tool of political repression and particularly uh, reflects the conflation of foreigners and radicalism and uh, foreigners being seen as the source of subversion, and that they are um, importers of dissent and, and radicalism, and um, they are the spreaders of um, subversion within the United States, and um, they are also very vulnerable. So what you find is is that um, as the United States begins suppressing Uh, speech and expression, whether it is anarchist speech or communist speech, um, the United States also uses ideological exclusion deportation as part of their suppression efforts. And this tool of political repression endures over time. And um, I make an argument that uh, the interpretation of ideological exclusion and deportation as an immigration issue rather than as a First Amendment issue by the majority of the Supreme Court is what helps it endure. And and before we get to that fascinating part
0: of the book, I have to say that was, that was for me, the enormous takeaway. And it just, it changed everything that I read from the time I read the book. So thank you for that, the distinction about First Amendment and immigration law in the court. Uh, You make a couple of distinctions that I think will be helpful to get out in the open. Uh, You talk about explicit versus implicit laws and also a third type. And I was wondering if you could uh, get those definitions out for listeners. And also you talk about three categories of discretion, prosecutorial, ultimate, and interpretive. And, And I think you're arguing that those come together uniquely in ideological exclusion. So I'd, I'd love for the listeners to get that as well
1: before we move on. Sure. Um, and that's something that I outline in the introduction of my book uh, to be as clear as possible. Because I'm, what I'm trying to do is to um, explore the underlying dynamics uh, of ideological exclusion, deportation, and um, how they're functioning. And being used. And so, in implicit and explicit restrictions, I'm, I'm the one who makes that distinction. And an explicit restriction would be uh, a statute um, or a federal restriction uh, that ic- explicitly excludes a particular group, like anarchists or communists or advocates of a particular ideology. An implicit is a little bit more open-ended and leaves a lot of power and discretion um, in the public official to bar or eject someone who is detrimental to the United States or someone um, who poses a national security risk. It's really dependent on that official's interpretation um, and judgment on who poses that risk. And that leads into the, the discretion. And what I do is I use uh, the legal scholar um, Daniel Kanstrom's, uh three definitions of discretion, prosecutorial, ultimate, and interpretive discretion. And um, prosecutorial discretion is just the, the discretion by a public official to either defer, delay, um, or prevent a deportation. Ultimate discretion is the power of a public official to admit or exclude um, a uh, foreign non-citizen. They they hold ultimate discretion and and that power. Interpretive discretion is um, the interpretation by that public official of an implicit or explicit restriction. Um, So interpreting the law... Um, to determine whether a particular foreign non-citizen is going to fall under it for exclusion and deportation purposes. Now, you also, there was a third category of exclusion and deportation, and that's what I call also selective or retaliatory exclusion deportation. And what this is, is um, a kind of a targeting of an individual um, based on Uh, his or her expressions, beliefs, um, or associations, and uh, exclusion or deportation as kind of a retaliatory motivation um, for that expression, belief, and association. And often that those um, deportations or exclusions aren't necessarily under an implicit or explicit restriction, but maybe might be under something else, like overstaying a visa or um, some other infraction, and that individual is selected for exclusion or deportation, but based on their views. So what you're doing is you have to really kind of look at the motivation behind that exclusion and deportation and the selection of that person.
0: What I really like about the book is the way that you take these small decisions and actions against individuals and make the case for their importance in terms of the core values of the United States. In other words, that our national identity uh, or our identity as a nation that Upholds the First Amendment that upholds the free exchange of ideas, Oliver Wendell Holmes and the marketplace of ideas, et cetera. All of this is at stake in the um, exclusion of of others. And I want to ask you two two questions. One is little, which is that uh, about you choice of vocabulary. I talk to a lot of authors, and 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 they have to make big choices about the terms they use. You use the word foreigners, and I'm wondering the extent to which uh, that was a a choice. What else was out there? What other alternatives? And then second, the bigger question having to do with what is at stake. Um, Is it, as I've said, is it national identity? Would you say that it's more than that?
1: Well, using foreigners was absolutely a deliberate decision. And um, the law in in immigration uh, law usually uh, refers to um, non-citizen immigrants or visitors as aliens. And that term has really kind of fallen out of favor and is uh, really considered um, something that uh, is uh, almost offensive, uh, to refer to a foreign non-citizen as an alien. Um, and, uh, I decided at the beginning, uh, not to use that and just use foreigners. Now, when I talk about the law, I give, I give the name of the law. So if it's an alien immigration act, that's what I use. But when I am referring to people, I use, I use foreigners or foreign non-citizens. and that was a deliberate choice. Uh, so in terms of this argument, does this, you know, ideological exclusion deportation undermine um, our liberal uh, de- democratic values and free expression and exchange that is essential to self-government and undermines our reputation abroad and identity as a nation of immigrants and depicts the United States as fearful, insecure, and repressive, those that, that's not just kind of my argument, but that actually is the argument of those who are either being excluded or deported, um, or those who are challenging uh, ideological exclusion and deportation on their behalf, um, that I find this again and again and again, throughout um, this history of this argument, those who are... Um, advocating for such exclusion, deportation, are saying, no, 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 we um, need to exclude or deport uh, to preserve the nation and to protect it against subversives and those seeking to undermine um, democracy. And those who are challenging such exclusions and deportations are saying, don't you understand that by uh, this form of censorship, and uh, this type of suppression, this this political repressive tool that you're using, you are, in fact, undermining uh, the very values that you are seeking to protect. And this is an argument that runs throughout the book um, and this history. And um, I think that for many people, it's... It, The very identity of the country as a nation of immigrants, but also one um, that champions free expression and the reputation of the United States also abroad that is at stake. And, um, that's what I bring out in the book. No, and it's beautifully done with
0: so many different examples that show both the continuity, but also the breaks in continuity and the sort of new developments over time. Um, I want to just hone in on one other thing which has to do with the role of the Supreme court. Uh, in the last few weeks, uh, Americans who watch the Supreme court have been receiving all sorts of opinions that affect the extent to which, uh, the president has the ability to limit, uh, make changes to, uh, immigration uh, laws, for example, DACA. Um, I, it, but you're, in your book, the Supreme Court, over time, there's a bunch of players, institutions. The ACLU is a player in the book, but SCOTUS is a player. And I, I was wondering if before we go into the Mandela case, if you could just talk a little bit about how it is that the Supreme Court has, has played this role and, and how its decisions to treat this as immigration as opposed to free speech
1: in general, has has played out before we go to the specifics? Sure. And um, what you see also in these recent decisions and um, watching the Supreme Court, that a lot of the issues that I mentioned before about discretion um, are coming into play here, especially when you're talking about immigration issues. Now, in immigration law, um, you have something called the plenary power doctrine, which is something I explain in the book. And this is established in the late 19th century um, by Supreme Court decisions, including those that uphold Chinese exclusion. And what this doctrine states is that uh, Congress has the power uh, to regulate immigration, to exclude and deport, um, based on its national sovereignty and inherent right to self-preservation and that the executive will enforce those restrictions and has the discretion to do so and um, that the judiciary should defer to the decision-making of those executive officials as well as to Congress's power. And what people argue over time is is that um, this is actually in a way, a violation of the separation of powers and undermines checks and balances. This, is, this insulates immigration um, from substantive judicial review and certain due process protections. And, uh, but this doctrine has a hold, and um, that's very important in, these, in uh, these cases, as I show in the book.
0: Um, I don't want to open a whole big chapter, but can you just give us the the two paragraph version of Chinese exclusion? Because so many people listening to the podcast are familiar with uh, other forms of exclusion that come later. But but there's a hole often with Chinese exclusion. And I was just wondering if you could give us the briefest version of it before we move on.
1: Well, there are are whole books on Chinese exclusion, um, that you should go and certainly read. Um, but, uh, what you have is in the late, late 19th century, um, as the federal, uh, government begins to, um, restrict immigration, uh, the exclusion of the Chinese, um, along with, um, other exclusions that have been, uh, instituted by the states. Uh, There's a, I should uh, remind listeners that um, immigration has never really been open. Uh, That before the federal government starts regulating immigration, the states are regulating immigration um, from the colonial period through the 19th century. And particularly, there's a concern about Chinese immigration um, uh, in the West, Uh, through the the 1840s and um, into the late 19th century. And a lot of this is uh, uh, concerns and and racism against the Chinese and concerns about labor competition. And there's a real push, especially by those out in California and the the West Coast, uh, to restrict uh, Chinese immigration, um, skilled and unskilled laborers from our shores, Um, And so the states kind of lead the push and pressure the federal government and the federal government answers um, and begins to restrict uh, Chinese uh, immigration, uh, specifically of uh, skilled and unskilled laborers in the late 19th century. So challenges to that exclusion come before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upholds the right of Congress to exclude Um, including to exclude the Chinese, um, and establishes this plenary power doctrine. And what's so important for my story is that um, when the Supreme Court is confronted with challenges to ideological exclusion and deportation, it sees those cases as an immigration issue, not as a First Amendment issue. So, what that means is it's going to apply the plenary power doctrine and not necessarily First Amendment legal protections. And um, that helps the ideological exclusion deportation uh, laws and um, specific exclusions and deportations survive and to be used as a political repression tool. And what you find is that the Supreme Court is citing uh, the Chinese exclusion cases in its decisions, um, saying, oh, no, the Congress has the right to exclude and the judiciary should defer to um, this power and the decisions of the executive under the plenary power doctrine. And this is longstanding doctrine. So what's important for me in the book is to start out talking about the establishment of um, this doctrine uh, to set the stage also for my discussion of ideological exclusion deportation and how the Supreme Court is interpreting uh, those restrictions. And for listeners who don't follow the Supreme Court, is the Supreme Court still citing the precedents from the Chinese exclusion cases? I've noticed that... They, um, in the footnotes, not so much, but what they are doing is they're citing uh, the reaffirmation of the plenary power doctrine in the 1950s. And, um, and so those yeah, cases no, that might cite, yes, well. have you said? So it's, it's very interesting to see, and that's what makes um, this history, I think, so important.
0: Yeah, let's turn to what's one of the most fascinating chapters in the book. Um, and so, you know, for those who don't have the book in front of them, although I really encourage you um, to to pick up a copy, it's really fantastic reading. It's a real page turner, as well as being a great scholarly achievement. Um, let's talk a little bit about, Oh, so for, for those who don't have the book in front of them, we're going to jump in in the middle. But. Julia, in the book, will take you through from the 18th century to the 1960s as to how we got to this place that we're going to pick up with here. So in 1969, a 46-year-old Belgian Marxist economist named Ernest Mandel applies for a visa. Uh, he, students at Stanford had invited him to come to a conference on um, uh, speaking about language technology and the third world. Uh, and also to participate in a debate with none other than John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, And while he's waiting for his visa, he gets more invitations from Amherst and Princeton and Columbia and the New School and MIT. But Mandel never gets the visa. Uh, And you claim that this is a case of ideological exclusion in the late 20th century by the Nixon administration. So let's start with so why would Nixon want to prevent Mandel from debating John Kenneth Galbraith? Uh, and, and so how does this begin? Uh, and then uh, we'll move to how the ACLU and the courts get involved.
1: Yes. Well, this is a fascinating case and that's why I spend so much time on it. Um, because it tells you so much about, um, the dynamics at play, uh, in ideological exclusion and the um, longevity um, of uh, some of these laws that continue to be used. So what happens is that Ernest Mendel has visited the United States before. He's visited in 1962 and then in 1968. And what ends up happening now in 1969 is that he discovers that he's excluded. And then through communication with the consulate um, that he has always been inadmissible under uh, a section of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, referred to as the McCarran-Walter Act, um, which bars advocates of world communism. And this act was passed at the height of McCarthyism is still on the books. It survives immigration reform in the mid-1960s. And now the Nixon administration is using it. And what's happened is that Mandel discovers that he's always been excluded, but he's been granted waivers of inadmissibility to come to the United States. And this time, the Nixon administration says no. And what, what Mandel discovers is that he didn't know anything about the waivers and that there were restrictions on him, um, straying from his itinerary. And he tells the state department, I had no idea. And if you let me in now, I will stick to my itinerary and the confines of my restricted visa under this waiver. And, uh, should be good. You know, I didn't know. And now I do. And the state department says, okay. And the justice department and the attorney general, John and Mitchell says no. And John and Mitchell uh, hold tremendous ultimate discretion to decide who can be admitted um, or excluded and to grant this waiver. And refuses. And it's really unclear why, but it really seems to be part of the Nixon administration's um, desire to suppress the new left and uh, is concerned about protests on college campuses and really doesn't see an incentive amongst uh, their supporters to um, admit Ernest Mandel. And so this case makes national news. And the real um, focus is on how to challenge Mendel's exclusion. And what I do is is I go through all of uh, the attention about this case and the backstory using archival research and um, a Freedom of Information Act uh, request and and disclosures and what you find is is that um, there's a major hurdle uh, to challenging this exclusion, which I talked about earlier with that John Turner anarchist case, because Mendel does not hold constitutional rights. He does not, he, he cannot make a claim to challenge his exclusion under the First Amendment. But the professors in the United States who have invited him do have a claim. And so I talk about the lawyer Leonard Boudin and his young associate David Rosenberg, and it's Rosenberg who devises this strategy for the American professors to challenge Mendel's exclusion as a violation of their First Amendment right to receive information and to hear it's brilliant. I, I'm just going to interrupt you. It's brilliant that part of the book. It
0: is just it. It is it is so akin to reading about the NAACP's thoughts about okay, how do we create precedents to overturn desegregation? And there they they have this sort of plan ahead, and here you see this kind of on the ground moment of how are we going to argue this? And I I just think that. This part of the book is so valuable to understand how it is that the rule of law functions. And we can make fun of lawyers and tell lots of jokes and have lots of New Yorker cartoons about them. But here you see how figuring out the way around standing, figuring out what is the legal issue, becomes this very, very productive. in In a lot of ways, it pushes them to be talking about liberal democracy, and the importance of the free exchange of ideas. It's just, I loved this part of the book.
1: Thank you, and it's one of my favorites, and that I really worked hard to not only give the entire backstory, including not only devising this strategy, and and the professors, you have Norman Birnbaum from Amherst, you also have Noam Chomsky from um, MIT, who are the American... Professor Plaintiffs, Leonard Boudin, um, whose name should sound familiar, one of the most famous civil rights and civil liberties attorneys in the mid-20th century, um, who also uh, defended Dr. Spock and Julian Bond, and also uh, D- Daniel Ellsberg in his espionage case later on, uh, really involved in, in uh, these uh, important uh, First Amendment cases, as well as establishing the precedent um, for freedom of travel and uh, striking down passport restrictions and the right to receive information. And so Boudin is key here in terms of he's also helped establish the precedent that he and Rosenberg are going to use to challenge Mendel's um, exclusion. And what I also love is that Boudin is very aware of the Turner case, so much so that he actually, during oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court, makes a reference to the Turner case and says, I wish I could have argued that case. Fascinating. Right. Yeah. And I I saw that as I look at the transcript of those oral arguments, I say, I got to put this in the book. Because what happens is is that's what also is so important about telling this long history, which is not only as um, a, a writer... Bringing this history to a reader, I'm making those connections. But the lawyers and activists and organizations and those excluded and deported are also making those connections over time. And so, what's the best part, too, is that I also show the backstory in the Supreme Court, which is how do they wrestle with these issues and um, how do we get to the decision of Klondike versus Mandel in 19. 72.
0: Well, um, I'm going to say that the listeners are going to have to read the book for the Backstory <laughs> Supreme Court part because it's amazing. But I do want you to tell everybody how this case came out um, before we move to the end of the book, which has to do with the Trump administration and the extreme vetting, uh, um, and including the travel ban. So tell us how this case came out and then, and then tell us a little bit about how all this plays out in our present day, and then we'll also talk about the no ban Act, which happened just two days ago because we're recording this podcast on july twenty fourth
1: Sure, well, there's kind of good news and bad news here with the, with the Mendel case. Now, the good news is that this brilliant strategy of having the those within the United States and um uh those uh who uh, have invited Mendel to come and speak, uh, they uh, they succeed in the fact that the court says, yes, you have standing, you can challenge exclusion um, as a violation of your First Amendment rights, and that leads to a pathway to challenge exclusion, which we still use. Um, so if you see kind of exclusion uh, challenges, it's not necessarily by the foreign non-citizen who is trying to get into the United States, but usually has um, as the lead, either a state or an organization within the United States. It says I'm injured or I'm, my rights are being violated. So look for that. But this is, this is what um, the strategy leads to. So the court says, yes, go forward. This is um, the way to challenge, but it doesn't um, mean that Mendel can, come to the United States. uh, The court upholds his exclusion. And the uh, justice who writes the opinion, Justice Harry Blackman, issues a new standard and says, you know, we're going to curb the Attorney General's ultimate discretion to exclude and to deny or grant these waivers. But that Attorney General um, and uh, public officials must have a facially legitimate and bona fide reason to deny a waiver and exclude. Now, this is lower than current First Amendment standards and the application of something called strict scrutiny, which requires uh, the government to uh, narrowly tailor its restrictions um, to serve a compelling government interest. Um, but it's a standard nonetheless. And so what you find is going forward is that... Um, this is, it's lawyers when they challenge um, exclusion cases, um, either say that the, the, the exclusion falls short of the facially legitimate and bona fide reason, or they say that that reason doesn't apply and they use another part of the law. So sometimes they use this Mendel precedent and sometimes they say, well, Mendel doesn't apply. But this case is so important because it's still cited as precedent. Um, and knowing its backstory and how uh, the court arrives at this holding is essential to understanding um, exclusion and challenges to exclusion. So, so tell us about the Trump administration and and how
0: is extreme vetting ideological exclusion?
1: Okay, well, this is actually a challenge um, for historians. We say how close to the present can you get? And I it was. Um, uh, very tricky, uh, to, uh, try to bring the manuscript up so far to the present, but I was determined that I, I really needed to, um, go into the travel ban, um, case and, uh, its decision, A travel ban, uh, under the Trump administration often referred to as the Muslim ban is part of what, uh, Donald Trump referred to as extreme vetting during his campaign. And um, the travel ban, uh, which was uh, first instituted as an executive order in 2017, the suspending entry to seven, uh, at the time, Muslim-majority countries uh, under a provision of the McCarran-Walter Act, uh, 212F, and so, uh, what you see here is that the, that we are still living under the McCarran Walter Act, um, incorporated into our current immigration nationality, um, legislation. And, uh, that provision authorizes, uh, the president, uh, through proclamation to, uh, suspend entry to or place restrictions on entry. If the president determines that, um, such entry would be detrimental to, uh, U.S. interest and, um, what you have here is, again, a case of uh, how much power the executive holds and are there checks on that power. And so um, this travel ban case has less to do with um, ideological exclusion. It's more based on kind of religious um. Uh, exclusion or, or and really a focus on exclusion based on national security. But what's significant here is that um, you have another challenge to um, this ultimate discretion and um, power by the executive mm-hmm. to exclude and the Supreme Court is once again confronted with whether it's going to defer to right. the president, um, and uh, does it? Uh, are there any curbs on this power under 212 F? And that's that's what the, what the, that decision is, um, that you can read about um, really wrestles with. And so oh, it, it's a, it's a nice complement to the Mandel decision too.
0: Yeah, no, I, it's a really great way to end the book. And I, I I, know it's hard and it's very hard to write a good conclusion. Uh, you've been working on the book for a long time and you're up against the deadline. And sometimes those those conclusions aren't as meaningful as they might be. This one is really terrific. And when you talk about religion versus ideological, it's such a blurry line there, right? If we're going to have conversation and we're going to talk about uh, very controversial issues, and we come at them from different perspectives based on uh, our upbringings, our beliefs. In fact, there's there's a lot of overlap there. Um, I, I want to ask you about something that clearly was after the deadline of the book. Uh, two days ago, the House passed the No Ban Act uh, for my um, American politics people. It's twenty two fourteen. They know. Uh, the bill imposes limitations on the president's authority. So it's exactly what you're talking about, this conflict between the powers. So the the bill would say that the president's authority to suspend or restrict, and I'll use the word aliens because they do in the bill, because it's the legal word, from entering the U.S. um, and and terminating certain actions is, is like they're going to limit what the president can do. And it allows... The individual present in the U.S. who is being unlawfully harmed by such restrictions to sue in federal court. So I wanted your insights on this bill and how you see it. Is this ideological exclusion? Is this about executive versus congressional power? And and do you think that this can be successful? Would would the Supreme Court see it within Congress's purview? Not saying that this can get past the Senate. It's, highly unlikely. But, but but if it could, how would it fall out given the
1: long history that you've looked at in the book? Well, I was very lucky um, that I was just able to um, slide in the No Ban Act right before I submitted the manuscript. So I was able to just get it in there um, because I knew it was going to be significant, um, especially in light of um, the uh travel ban decision um and so when i saw this um i i knew that this was something very very important and also something to be watching and is a great first step in trying to um li- place limitations and checks and oversight um over the president's authority um i think that the really the power is in congress to revise and make, um, immigration reform and, um, to regulate immigration. So that, that, that Congress holds that power. So, um, we'll see what ends up happening with this act and I, I hope it is successful, but what's most significant about this act is the inclusion of more oversight and subjecting, um, the, uh, president's actions under this, pl- this proclamation power under uh, 212F to strict scrutiny and um, limitations and uh, much more um, uh, 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 checks and, and uh, uh, being, uh, the ability to um, really hold the, the president and the executive accountable for exclusions under, um, this, uh, presidential proclamation power. And that is very important, especially in moving forward. As we begin to think more about immigration reform, we need to address the plenary power doctrine, this, this judicial deference and not leave it to the courts to, um, try to provide more oversight and raise that, um, scrutiny level. That's really up to Congress. We've seen that the courts have kind of failed, um, to raise the scrutiny level and provide that oversight. And it's really Congress, um, with its power to, um, pass legislation, uh, that can do it. And that's what we see in, uh, the no ban act. So, um, I think that ultimately, as we move forward, um, whatever happens with the act, hopefully in reform efforts, we can uh, begin to push for more of this oversight and more of this check on uh, ultimate and unfettered discretion held by the executive.
0: Well, thank you so much, Julia. It's so rare that somebody writes a book for two decades and it's published in the weeks in which the book is is really needed by everybody. And I highly recommend this book as a well-researched, beautiful use of images uh, that kind of take your breath away. Um, and a really high level of sophistication mixed with this accessibility. That's really hard to do, and you did it. There's something very random about our backgrounds that sort of clash, and I'm just gonna mention it. I rarely do this, but I'm going to anyway. You're the Judith S.K. Uh, fellow, and I was interning for Mario M. Cuomo in the early 80s. Um, in the 1982 election, he had very much like Joe Biden made a pledge. And the pledge was to appoint a woman to the U.S., uh, to the New York State Court of Appeals, which in, in in New York is the highest court. And there were no women on it. Anyway, I was an intern. I was pulled in for the press conference. I got to shake her hand and I was thrilled to see her name on the back of uh, your book. She became a, a very, very important uh, uh judge in the state of New York. And uh, I would be excited to have her name on my uh, resume the way you do. Uh, So thank you so much for for joining us to talk about the book.
1: Thank you so much, Susan. It was delightful to uh, have the chance to talk with you. I am so happy that um, you enjoyed reading the book, and I can't ask for a better endorsement. And I was uh, very proud to um, have become the Judith S. K. Uh, fellow for the Historical Society of the New York C- Courts back in uh, 2016, and to have met Judith K. when I was a college student, just thinking oh. about yeah, th- the first time. And I remember I met her, and we had a brief conversation, and she was so supportive and encouraging, and especially of young people. And so, um, well, I'm no longer a fellow. Um, At uh, the Society, I do uh, still uh, serve on its education committee, and I had the chance to teach students as a fellow. And I always tell them about Judith S.K. and um, talk about how she founded the Society and cared deeply about educating young people about legal history and the importance of um, the court system. Well, thank you so much. And I think the book can reach
0: everyone, including those students. Uh, the book is Threat of Dissent, a History of Ideological Exclusion and Deportation in the United States, published by Harvard University Press to uh, 2020. Just came out this month. Uh, it is available everywhere you know it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of bookshop.org, which supports brick and mortar bookstores that are uh, really impacted by COVID 19. So think about purchasing the book and having it mailed to your door and supporting those bookstores. But get in anywhere you can. And thank you again so much, Julie. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so
1: much, Susan.